Black History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. October is known as the sports equinox. The NBA and NHL seasons are underway. Baseball is in playoff mode. WNBA season has crowned a winner, but ostensibly, it's all about the gridiron. We'll talk about a new college football tradition that pays homage to a lost legend that had an impact on not just one, but two proud programs. Secondly, with the World Series taking place in Atlanta, there's a lot of focus on their MLB team's mascot and their fan practices, which have been the subject of controversy for many years. And since it's been so long since the Braves are playing for a championship, sports fans writ large have forgotten about what they do at their home ballpark. Folks, to say about in that. In the Midwest, fall is about it. football. The traditions that surround communities on Saturdays are iconic, from the tailgating to the outfits people wear on game days, and in some cases, that history trickles down to the field. Rivalry trophies are as time-honored as the wins and losses themselves in many cases. In the Pacific Northwest, the Washington Huskies and Washington State Cougars play for the Apple Cup. And since 1925, the Purdue Boilermakers and Indiana Hoosiers have played for the old Oaken Bucket, a trophy that was apparently a big local attraction in the 1800s, so much so that author Samuel Woodworth wrote a poem about it. The Oregon Ducks and Oregon State Beavers play for the Platypus Cup, which cracks me up on a lot of levels, and the Minnesota Golden Gophers and Wisconsin Badgers play for Paul Bunyan's Axe. Minnesota also plays the Iowa Hawkeyes for something called Floyd of Rosedale, which is a bronze pig, a bit that started as a bet between the state's two governors. Most of them are designed from fun and relative frivolity, but this year, the Michigan Wolverines and the Northwestern Wildcats played for a trophy named after one of the most important but forgotten figures in college football history. His name is George Jewett. He was the first black football player in the Big Ten, and he played for both Michigan and Northwestern. How his story came to light? Well, it's one of good old-fashioned journalism. Welcome back to Black History Always. My name is Clinton Yates of The Undefeated. We're talking with Peter Warren, who is, more than he knows, a bit of an archaeologist of football history. Peter, I want to ask you to begin with, before we get to anything having to do with the trophy, for lack of a better term, who are you? Yeah, so uh, my name is Peter Warren. Uh, you know, I just graduated from Northwestern in June, where you know works for the Daily Northwestern there for a lot of, you know, for my whole time there. It's where I wrote the you know, story on George Jewett originally. So, you know, journalists, you know, just got hired by On3 Sports, which is a new sports media startup in the college sports world. We have some great stuff going on there. And, you know, like you mentioned up front, I love football. I love football history. I love, you know, sports, college sports history. I love diving into it. And the George Jewett story was one of my, my favorite ones I've written. And I think one that means a lot to a lot of people. Northwestern is a journalism school of much accord with many um, alums that have done a lot of things. And, you know, the work that happens at that school is not easy to sort of overdo, but you've got a pretty big one on your wall in terms of things that you've affected. And we can get to that later, but I want to ask you just on a basic level, how did you find this? Where did this start at all? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as somebody who loves sports history and you know, writing about sports history, you know, when I joined the daily and sort of worked my way up, I wanted to pursue some of these stories about history, about Northwestern history. You know, when people think about Northwestern sports, right, it's a lot about the futility of the team in the 70s and 80s, yeah. you know, even a little more recently. And then you also have the 96 Rose Bowl team. And that's sort of what you think about with Northwestern sports. But there's a lot more, you know, beyond the scenes. And so having spent a lot of times, you know, at the archives at the university, just trying to read a lot of materials, you know, I came across George's story and, you know, immediately, you know, your mind thinks this, this could be great and sort of trying to figure out 
when the right time to pursue it would be. I think I first honestly came across it about a year before actually writing the story. Mm. Just sort of came across probably reading um, just a brief history of Northwestern football and sort of just saw, you know, George Jewett's name, you know, in a sentence or two about him and sort of put that in the, the back of my mind for something later on to, to come back to. And, you know, sort of worked my way up through daily. I became a, a sports columnist in, for winter quarter in 2020. And as a sports columnist, I felt it was important to have at least one story about Black History Month and have that in the newspaper, you know, sort of yeah. represent, you know, not just an aspect of a sports history that is a lot of times, you know, not told as much and forgotten, but especially at a place like Northwestern where history and sports history is very much narrow to a small degree. For what it's worth, you're white and, mm -hmm. you know, it, it doesn't matter in the context of anything other than you're doing the time to rather taking the time to highlight something that is not, I don't want to say natural to you, but is not of your own. I mean, for those who don't know, for young journalists who might be out there listening, you said you're just combing through the archives as if that's something to do on a Friday night. You know, please do explain what that process is in terms of looking for stories and trying to find things that are worth documenting. I've been in your position. I know what that's like. I was not a Northwestern guy, but I know what it's like to be a sports writer at a school where, you know, the sports is kind of part of it, but not sort of everything, you know? Yeah. And I think that honestly, that also in my mind, helped because you know a lot of these stories i'd come across and you you know a story like george jewett you, you know in my mind it's like how has nobody already written this right and when you go to a school like northwestern you know stories like that fall through the cracks i mean i wrote for a journalism class i wrote about you know a, a native american quarterback who's in the college football hall of fame who played for northwestern for a few years nobody had written about that you know there's a lot of untold stories out there and I think, you know, for people would be interested in pursuing that, you know, going to your your school's archives and finding an archivist you can work with. I had Kevin Leonard at Northwestern, who is remarkable and extremely intelligent. And whenever I had a question, he always had, you know, three three places to go look and tell me, go to yearbooks, go to, the, you know, newspaper online, archives online. If it was a story where people were alive, he could easily find me people to talk to. You know, so for one story, I put on the 49 Rose Bowl team. He got me people to talk with, mm. you know, that are in their nineties, talk about stuff like that. And just sort of doing, like I said, doing the work, you know, especially as somebody who was white, you know, I, you know, I needed to, especially for a story like this, I couldn't just read a few things and be like, all right, it's time to go. You know, you need to put in the time and effort to make sure that, you know, you're not just writing about something to write about it. You need to write about something and become an expert in it. So then you can not only just write about it to write about it, but write about it with authority and give the story the proper recognition and, and time it deserves. That's an excellent workflow right there. But let me ask you, what were you actually doing? Were you looking at paper books? Were you looking at microfiche? What were we talking about in terms of the actual physical structures of what you were actually going through from a research standpoint? Mm -hmm. um, so luckily at Northwestern, all of the newspapers going back to the 1870s are all digitized online. Mm -hmm. So what I can do is I could, you know, Key, key and it's pretty well done honestly with with key search with keywords and, and searching so i would at first i just search you know northwestern football from you know 1893 to 1894 and sort of went through all that you know the all the yearbooks are in the northwestern archives so i'd physically have the yearbooks you know flip through the pages see you know which is nice because it's wow. can be sometimes tough for those keywords so yeah. 
you know, I'd go through, you know, go to football, right. Immediately go to the scanner, scan those just, you know, just to have those on file also, because there's some pretty good photos, you know, of the team and also flip through, see, okay, did George's name, where else did George's name pop up? And there's also some, you know, other files going through trying to figure out, you know, academic records. And that's a little more tough when you get way back into the, you know, 1890s. Yeah, we're talking lot. about the 1800s and <laughs> academic records for sure. So it's like, I, I remember, I don't think there was much, if any sort of on file and on location that was able to go through, but that's sort of what I'm dealing with a lot of, you know, the online archives for newspapers, as well as, you know, Chicago Tribune, other places like that, that are excellent, as well as, the physical stuff in Northwestern libraries, like yearbooks that are really great and help. Peter Warren joins us here on Black History Always. My name is Clinton Yates. When did you know you had a story? You know what I mean? In terms of like, Mm -hmm. you said you started a year and it took a year, but when did you think like, you know what? This is something that I have to tell the world beyond just something that I'm going to know that's going to inform me about what I do going forward. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, immediately sort of coming across story, it was like, I need to write this at, at some point, you know, this is something that I think needs to be told. I really think this sort of figuring out how to tell it and the best way to tell it, which was, you know, through a column really came probably at the end of January. So about a month or so out, I was, you know, trying to plan calls in advance. I knew, I remember uh, national women in sports day was going to coincide with one of the days my columns would come out. So I was like, let me write about that for one. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to plan out, you know, I know certain sporting events will probably be big, might need a column for that. And I was looking at it lined up that the end of February was going to be, you know, a great way in my mind to finish Black History Month would be to tell the story about George. And I was also actually hoping to tell, include the story of uh, Alton Washington, who was also a black football player for Northwestern in the late 1800s from about 1898 to 1901 and sort of digging into that. You know, it was, uh, you know, with a guy like that, who's not the first and, you know, doesn't have as much recognition of George it was a lot tougher to find stuff. So I decided to, at that point, really narrow in on George and focus in about how this, you know, fantastic athlete, you know, great person, great academic and focus on why am I feels like me, you know, Kevin Leonard at the RD archives, few other people and my friends are the only ones who know about this incredible human being. And it felt like, you know, with my position, you know, as a columnist, somebody knows history to sort of bring, that's the best way in my mind I could to tell this story and bring it to as most people as possible. Beyond your process. I mean, the story is amazing. You know what I mean? Let's just, let's (laughs) just start there, you know, for those who will read it later, those who haven't read it. I mean, just, just describe it in sort of layman's terms in terms of what and who this man actually is. So George, was born in, you know, 1870, you know, in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you know, went to Ann Arbor High School and was valedictorian, you know, played baseball and, and, and football, was a star on both teams, was also on the debate club, you know, he spoke four languages. The man was truly a, a scholar athlete, hmm. went to Michigan, played in, uh, he was not in school from the 1891 season, but played in 1890 and 1892 and was a star on both teams, was the best player. And, you know, had some absolutely dominating performances and ended up transferring to Northwestern for the 1893-94 academic year, say for two years, get his medical uh, degree at Michigan. He had an issue with the dean where the dean didn't want the medical students playing football. 
And so he, that's why he went to Northwestern. Let's and stop Northwestern, there for a second. Now, mm-hmm. this is in an era of college football where things were hairy at best in terms of, oh, yeah. I mean, eligibility, whatever we want to call it. I mean, the guys that were playing were just basically guys that were playing. You know, mm-hmm. what did you find about that sort of discrepancy between him and the dean of the medical uh, the medical school that was beyond just he didn't want, I mean, like, what did you learn about that sort of era of college football sort of separately from George? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a wild time in college football, you know. I mean, just even reading about Northwestern, I think I mentioned the story. There's one headline where it's like the team has, you know, no coach, no captain. You know, <laughs> the team is like in shambles at Northwestern, right? And that's just sort of how it was. I mean, teams were playing high school teams all the time. I mean, Northwestern for like the first 20 or so years, you know, their most played opponent, I'd imagine, was, you know, Evanston Township High School. Mm-hmm. Like people were just scheduling games whenever they could, three games a week. It was very much just sort of, and the game was obviously different, right? Touchdowns were worth four points at the time. George was playing field goals too. It was a whole different scoring system. And it was just rump, rough and tumble. You know, this was before forward pass. Some guys, you know, would just go just to play and just sort of take money on the side. But George, it was clear, was not like that. He was somebody who cared as much about the school and the academics as much as, as much as he loved playing. That was also important to him. And I think that's also why he's such a great representation for a trophy and for somebody to remember is that he was both an excellent legendary football player and he was just as good in the classroom in a time where that didn't always happen. Uh, well, yeah, at a time when that didn't happen for <laughs> anybody, never mind black folks, you know what I mean? That's remarkable on a lot of levels. When you first went to sort of print with this story, I'm sure that there was a certain element of, you know, your colleagues and your editors, you know, look at that and say, whoa, you found this, buddy? Like, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? Like, what was the acclaim, if for lack of a better term, like just within, you know, the newspaper business or industry, you know, on campus? Mm-hmm. You know, I got a a lot of great feedback, you know, it was one of those things where I had talked with, with one of my friends, Andrew Golden, a lot about the story and sort of talking it through. And he's, you know, one of my really good friends We lived together last year. And so I was, he's the type of guy, like I bounce ideas off of a lot as well as some of the other people at the, at the newspaper. So I didn't sort of come in with a story and everybody was like, people sort of knew this was coming, but I think, you know, it was very similar to you know, sort of, I imagine a lot of people read it sort of like, how do we not know about this guy? Like, yeah. how is this the first time a guy like George Jewett is, is coming on our radar. And I think that's most of the feedback I got was like, this is a great story. Like, and a lot of it was also what else, what else out there is there? And what's is sucks about a lot of these stories about older players, especially older, older black players and older pioneers is that at the time, you know, we can, we all know about what it was like in the 1890s and, you know, with Jim Crow and segregation, all that yeah. is that there's not a lot of, paper record beyond what was happening on the football fields. And so there's a lot of George's history that I think people also want to learn more about where I was just like, there's just not a lot out there. And that's, you know, there's questions I would love to know. And I'm sure everybody would love to know that's just maybe we can, people can dig and find some, but there's a lot that's just lost to history that I think is truly tragic. So story comes out, the eighties hear about it. Next thing you know, there's a trophy. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but take me through that process. I mean, what a kind of a bizarre honor, if you will, that, you know, the journalism works. And next thing you know, two teams are playing for something to honor a man, but nobody would have known about it if you hadn't been the one in those archives. Mm -hmm. It's honestly, 
it's tough to like put into words and really describe what it was. I remember, interestingly enough, when they announced it, the trophy game and that it was going to be a thing, it was a year to the day of me publishing the original article. Oh, wow. And I just remember, and it was just, just a, a funny coincidence, you know, talking with uh, Paul Kennedy, who runs the, the communications department for Northwestern Athletics. He was sort of like, funny coincidence, but your story really meant, uh, played a large role. And, you know, and hearing on the broadcast this weekend, you know, that it was sort of, was the inspiration. It's like, especially as a, as a college journalist, you know, you know, you write stuff and you, you hope people can, you know, read it and it helps affect stuff. But, you know, I also know that like, I don't always have such high expectations that, you know, something like this, this is honestly, in the article I wrote, this guy should be in the college football hall of fame. And that's yeah. sort of what I was hoping, you know, maybe, maybe some voters, maybe somebody comes across it and like, his candidacy over the next couple of years sort of gets revived. I mean, in my mind, this is College Football Hall of Fame is what he deserves and should be in someday. But in my mind, this is this is even more of a, a legacy and a tribute because, you know, you go into the College Football Hall of Fame, you can sort of get bogged down by the thousand plus players in there. At this point, and there should be more, but there's one trophy in honor of an African-American man in college football right now, and that's George Jewett. And that should change over time. But even just being one of hopefully a few more to come, like that's a legacy that's going to continue to be brought up and not be forgotten. And that was such a big, big thing of writing. It was that we can't forget this guy. This guy cannot get lost. We've already lost so much, you know, about potentially learning about him. We can't lose anymore. And so having a trophy like that and just playing a small role and sort of helping that get done, it, it's, in the, it's indescribable. I really, it's tough for me to put into words how much it just means to know that this great history is being recognized. Peter Warren joins us here on Black History Always. My name is Clinton Yates from The Undefeated. Let's not get too crazy about this, though. How cool was it to get shouted out on TV, my man? It was it was really cool, to be honest. In the moment, I didn't even, like, put two and two together. I you know I was just sort of, my friend texted me and said, did you just catch that? And I was like, yeah, I was, you know, I was sort of, I was, you know, working at the time. So it was sort of, you know, I was watching how he's like, they gave, you know, you got shouted out. And I was like, I, you know, I rewinded. I was like, oh, my goodness. And, you know, the first thing I did was sort of, Send it to my parents, you know, they've always been supportive of me and sort of like, it's sort of being like, it's nice to get recognition and it's nice to sort of get that. But at the end of the day, it's like, I'm just happy that, you know, something I wrote is, is making an impact and will, it will hopefully stand long before, long after I'm around and sort of continue to push the legacy of something I think is important. And that's as much as it's cool being, you know, being a shout out on national TV, that's what matters to me more. Camera now, and this is what they're playing for. It's a little wobbly. This is a replica. This is the George Henry Hewitt Trophy. It's a beautiful trophy. Uh, Michigan, if they win this game, they'll place it this way. The plaque, the Michigan, there's Northwestern on this backside. So when Northwestern wins it, they'll flip it around, but very, very beautiful. Here's what I love about it, is that they capture every aspect of what made George Hewitt so great. His, His football prowess, his academic prowess, he was a valedictorian. He was a medical doctor and went yeah. to medical school. He's got medical the medical bag. bag right here, the, the coat over that. They did a, a wonderful job with this trophy. Now, this is obviously a replica, like you said. The 90-pound version, they call it a locker room trophy. They don't want to run it around the field. So it will be waiting for the winning team in their locker room. And you know what made George Hewitt so special? What's that? I don't know if our director can see this. Can we see it? Do it. Which do it. What made him so fast, special, folks, is he was so fast. He could run out of his shoes. 
<laughs> and then go pass a biology exam. Last thing I'll ask you, and this is what I ask everybody who who produces or writes or whatever stories that affect me is, what did you learn about yourself during this process, Peter? That's a great, that's a great question. You know, I think, you know, obviously writing it, you know, I, I've, you know, I, I was lucky, you know, I grew up growing up in New Jersey. I grew up in, a, in an area that had a lot of great black history, and, but it also, you know, was the type of thing where you need to, you know, sort of go, go after and find it instead of it being brought to you like it should be, you know, just sort of, i grew up in Scotch Plains, New Jersey, which is the home of the Shady Rest Golf Club, which was the first okay. uh, black owned golf club in, in the United States. And it's sort of like, I didn't really know about that and know about John Shippen and the history there until I was in high school. And even then, you know, I was one of the few people who knew about it, that we had this historic thing, you know, just a, you know, a, a stone throw away from where I went to high school and sort of having, you know, and this story brought me back to stories like that, or, you know, some of the, the Negro league events that I've gone to over time, listened and heard some of these people and just made me realize that, you know, these, these stories are out there, you know, they are out there at every school. There's somebody like George Jewett, you know, and it's not just, you know, you know, former black players. It's also native Americans. Yeah. It's Asians, people of Asian descent, people of uh, Latino descent. Like there, these stories are out there and, you know, you, people can go out and take them. It's just sort of, you need to, like I talked before, you know, put in the effort and put in the time to do it because the world is, you know, the world is in my mind, the world is better with Georgia's story out there and people knowing about it. And whether it's, you know, just, you know, you, someone writing an article and, down the line gets into the trophy or you just write the article and you know the community on campus grows smarter and stronger because of it you know there's you know the impacts are going to be different depending on the people and where you are but you know sort of what i learned is that you know don't just you know you can pursue these stories and do them well because they will make an impact and you can and don't just be afraid to do them just because you know it might not be the best fit because if you write it people will notice and people will care and that's sort of what matters. He's Peter Warren. He's a journalist. And he's the reason why we know about George Jewett. Thank you, Peter. You spoke to us. Now we'll speak to you. Here's Talk Back. It's amazing to see how far we've come in 30 years. On October 20th, 1991, the sports section of the New York Times printed this headline. Indians stage protest outside the dome. The entire story used that word to describe indigenous peoples, and there's a couple of really wild quotes. America is scholastically retarded about Indian culture and history and how the West was really one. That's Clyde Belcourt, a national director for the American Indian movement. Quote, it is pure ignorance, end quote. Phew. And the showstopper from Faye Vincent, the commissioner of baseball. For what it's worth, this sentiment was echoed by then-team president Stan Kasten as it's written in the story. It is inappropriate to deal with it now, Vincent said. Telling 57,000 people to change is beyond my capacity. Yikes. That tells you everything you need to know about where we were then versus where we are now. Oh, and this tweet was wild from a guy named Barrett Sally. PSA, 
If you're going to write columns on the chop and related topics associated with the Atlanta Braves, do research on the organization's relationship with Native Americans and specifically the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Don't just rattle off takes. This man proceeds to link to a basically spawn con from the team that talks about what they started doing in the year checks notes 2021. Yeah, that's not going to cut it, buddy. An interesting tweet from somebody who goes by Dr. Nat. Quote, full disclosure, I appeared in a promo video that the Braves shot in our community a few years ago, thinking this would be a great educational piece. Then the Braves shared the video and fans responded, yeah, chop on. Totally missing the point. I lost a lot of sleep over this, but just because my tribe sees some financial benefit doesn't make it okay, because the harm to the larger indigenous community is too great. It's not worth it for my tribe to benefit if the dehumanization continues. I know tribal leaders were very adamant about them stopping the chop, but obviously that hasn't happened. Interesting how that relationship works. Also, I pushed for the Braves to actually hire tribal members to be full-time consultants. Hasn't happened. From Chelsea Kearns, It's not even regionally relevant. It's a racist holdover from when the team was in Boston. It's just bad on all counts and would be so easy to fix by just abandoning and taking a new name. Reader at My Inked Pony writes, So true. This team is great and they did a great job against my Dodgers. They have a lot of talent, but that BS and the whole racist theme is completely off-putting. The fans sound like a cult and it's ugly. I've said this before. I'll say it again. There's no reason not to change this particularly in a season in which we lost one of the greatest, if not the greatest player of all time, Henry Lewis Aaron. Ditch all the problematic themes and rename the team after the one-time home run king, the Atlanta Hammers. It's right there, and the time for change is now. See y'all next week.